today's Ad Passion and Stir, we're talking about how to change school meals. We're with Jill Shaw from the Shaw Family Foundation here in Boston. I'm constantly evolving my thinking on what the ROI is for this program. Um, it was like that hum that I described when you saw every kid leaning over the table happily eating and, and you know, thriving. And Laura Benavides, the executive director of food and nutrition for Boston Public Schools. Eight out of every 10 of our kids were living at or below the poverty level. My breakfast participation was barely over 25%. So it was an opportunity to how we could close that gap. And then we started out a pilot program of about 20 schools, and then it just kind of snowballed into going from about 100,000 meals a day to about 360,000. Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We are in Boston this morning with two folks that I get to know and work with that I have known for a while and get to work with, um, both of whom I admire greatly. Laura Benavides, uh, who is the Executive Director of Food Service for the Boston Public Schools. Did I get that right? You sure Laura. did. Thank you. Um, and somebody that we worked together when you were in Los Angeles in a Deputy Director position there. It's a real treat to have you here. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Uh, and Jill Shaw, a neighbor, a friend. We were parents... Uh, together when our kids were at uh, Kingsley Montessori School here in uh, Boston's Back Bay. And now, little did I suspect when I knew then, Jill, <laughs> that you'd be basically revolutionizing, along with Laura, the whole food system for Boston Public Schools. Oh, we're really know. glad you're here. I was jealous of what you were doing, so <laughs> thank and you for having me. You've got, Jill Shaw's got a Shaw Family Foundation whose office is right next door. Correct, yep, right down the purposes. street, yeah. Um, tell me how, how did you two, I know you two have worked together. How did you two first meet? And, um, just let's start there. Oh, well, it was, I definitely have to say it was meant to be, but, um, I'm relatively new to Boston. I've been here for about a year and a half. And then when I first, I became the, I was the executive director. I started in August of 2016. Seems the executive like for, director of the food. Uh, for food and nutrition for Boston public okay. schools. And so I came in and I know that there's been a lot of, um, changes and opportunities in for the school uh, school food in Boston. So we've had a we have a, a lot of schools that do pre plated meals. We have a lot of schools that prepare meals, and in between that, there's not a lot of equity. But so I had the opportunity when I'm coming in, see what what are we going to focus on as a as a department, as a team? How are we going to be able to provide great food for kids? And um, in that time, which is a lot of meet and greet, I got to meet a lot of different people, a lot of different organizations that are trying to see what we want to be able to do. You know, how can we help Boston? We want to help Boston. We want to help Boston feed uh, food, to, great food to kids. And in one of those meetings, I met Jill. Mm. Oh, and little did I know we were getting ourselves into in a great way. Okay. So, Jill, we're going to come back to what you were doing at that meeting in just a moment. But tell me, Laura, what was your when you were hired, what's the job description for the executive director of food service in Boston Public Schools, and how many kids, how many schools, and how many kids are we talking about? Well, uh, well, the I think the the position is to be the responsibility of the food and nutrition services program for Boston Public Schools. That encompasses providing meals, nutritious meals, breakfast, lunch, and after school meals for fifty seven thousand students in one hundred and twenty five locations. Fifty seven thousand kids you're feeding every day, every single day. If breakfast I'm lucky, and yes. And lunch or after school as and well. After or? school meals, summer, and then any other. If there's any other way that I could provide a meal to a child, I will definitely do it. And are you the last word on what that food is, uh, how it's prepared, like how you know how hands on are you? Who, who's the ultimate decider? What kind of constraints do you have to work with? You know, it's actually kids are the ultimate deciders. Now, with Boston being the largest district in Massachusetts, the largest district in New England, we get a whole lot of people that are interested in doing business with Boston. We have this great product. We want to do this. We want to try this out. It's local. It's this. It's that. That's great. They can come in and give a whole song and dance and all kinds of things of what they want to share with um, our students. But I say, it doesn't. Oh, they'll share with my staff, and it's a great price. It does this. I said, it's all wonderful, but our kids have to tell us. The kids if, have to like it. They have to like it. We've in, we've implemented opportunity for surveys. We've implemented taste testings, which is I wanted to because I want to have student voice in what we do. Our program is about kids. It is driven. It needs to be driven by kids. So their voice needs to be part of the process. So I wish I could say, oh, this recipe is great. It's you know cost effective, but um, but if kids don't like it, this doesn't mean anything. And you've got a five year old of your own who's in Boston Public Schools, so you get feedback in real time. As oh, yeah. to every how the food single. Tastes. That's right. I, I ask her. I say, well, how was lunch today? And then she'll say, I, I like this. I didn't like that. We went. We and my friend didn't like this. Didn't like that. So it's a great opportunity to get feedback all the time. Okay, for some of us parents, that's like an icebreaker, just kind of a rhetorical question. But for you, it's yeah. like what you really. It's, it's not an real, academic. It's question. work. It's work. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Joe, what were you doing at the meeting that uh, Laura was at? How did you get involved in, in uh, the quality of food at Boston Public? Right. So the way I ended up there was um, as we were establishing the foundation, we knew we wanted to work in education and public education in the city of Boston. And so I was kind of poking around following other folks who were already doing things in the school system. And I ended up at a food tasting that was being hosted um, at one of the elementary schools. And so... The the kids had grown and cut arugula. It was a sunny day. It was starting to wilt. And so I suggested that we go inside to the kitchen. And they said, oh, no, you're not allowed to bring food into the kitchen. I said, okay, that's a curious rule. Right. And um, and so afterwards, um, I, I said, can I just get a tour of the kitchen? I'm so curious what, what it looks like. And uh, so in that kitchen, which is a satellite kitchen, um, there was a warming oven and a freezer. And so, the, you know, I was quickly told the food's all made in New Jersey. It gets shipped up. It's frozen. And it gets heated up in this oven. And, and there was no – there's nothing else. You know, there's some tables in and this how room. Long, how long ago was this? So that was a year and a half ago. And so so then I think I called you because that evening we went to South Boston to an event that you were hosting for Share Our Strength. And I was talking to all the people in the car about it. And I was like, I, can't, I just can't believe this. Like, how is this possible that we're making all our food in New Jersey? And so then I called you and I asked you if it was a similar situation in other big districts across the country. And you said, yeah, it's very – very similar. And so as we got to chatting about, you know, what did we want the foundation to get involved in, it, you know, it felt to me like food was a critical piece of the school puzzle and that kids should be fed real whole food if they possibly can. Now, the problem in Boston, like everywhere, is infrastructure is a problem, right? There are no kitchens in 75% of the schools. And so I took a kind of circuitous route through the mayor's office and, and met with some folks in City Hall, and they said, you know, we're just hiring a new head of food and nutrition services. And so as soon as she's on board, you should meet with her. So I spent the summer doing an analysis with whatever data we could get about where we spend our money in the city of Boston. And then and then Laura, I think Laura had been in like two weeks in her position, and I showed up <laughs> at a meeting with her team. But I think it was, you know, as we were, we had our meeting, it was just really great to talk about what we want as right. a department. Because for me is, I am spearheading the department, but it's a program about kids. It's about, and, and uh, for our community. And I think when we were having conversations, you were sharing with me how it was important. I mean, you were you were talking about how you were talking to kids and what, what you know, what from your perspective of what they were seeing or what they were receiving. And then, and I take that from an op- operation standpoint. I said, well, what can we do? Yeah. And so I, I did a lot of tours as well when I visited schools. I you know you know and, and then um, and taking into consideration our superintendent's um, core values: um, equity, innovation, coherence. There is nothing equitable about eighty five of our out of our hundred and twenty five schools that are receiving meals that are frozen and then heated up and served to kids versus other, the other forty plus schools that are. Um, Receiving, they're able to prepare their meals from fresh ingredients because that we they order. do have because they have real kitchens. Yeah, so it's not a lot of yeah, coherence well, either. <laughs> no, well, so so let's go back because there's two things you said, Jill, that are kind of um, almost unbelievable, and it's easy to kind of pass by them. One is that most schools don't have kitchens, right? Yeah, uh, which is a shock to people because when at least when I went to school, I'm older than I think both of you, but you know when I went to school, we had kitchens and our food was cooked. But the other thing you said, and I was looking through our glass window at our producer Paul Woodall, who had this look on his face. He was kind of aghast that uh, up until recently the food at Boston Public Schools was made in New Jersey yeah, right. and then shipped here on right. a train or a bus or a truck or something like that, which just seems right. insane. Well, it's, right? So don't actually, so then I, okay, I have to correct myself. It's currently being made in New Jersey. It was being, it was made in, in, Long, York, in, Long, yeah, Island. Long Island. That's what I always Right, right, right. So that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 and then when you came in, they had already put together the RFP because we had their three-year contracts for this bended meal program. And so, um, the next contract was going out, and so we have a new vendor. It doesn't solve the problem. It just kind of resolves. Well, I mean, it, it serves kids in the best way possible, given the fact there's no infrastructure. Right. And I think part of that is, it, Jill's absolutely right, Hoy, it doesn't solve the problem, is that one of the things that you notice when you go to these schools, because some, most of them were built before, 60%, I think, were built before World War II, the infrastructure is not there. So even even having conversations of coming new to Boston, one of the things they kept talking about, and not necessarily, it was just a lot of community members that were very interested about a commissary. 
And I said, that's great. I'm I'm all for any kind of ideas of how we can. A commissary being a place where the food is cooked centrally yes, and then central, shipped out. And then shipped the, out, yeah. which is which is wonderful because in Boston, about, about 12, 13 years ago, we used to have a central kitchen where we actually did that. But what I shared with them and my ask was, okay, well, then what's going to be the end result for the kids? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's great that if you have a commissary kitchen that you were cooking everything centrally. We create consistency. We create changes and um, um, opportunities to cut costs because it's all coming from a, a, a one location, in, you know, preferably here in Boston. The issue is how do we package it and send it out to the schools? And they said, well, we just put it in the same little pack. And I said, well, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem again because kids are still – doesn't matter to them where it came from per se – it's just that now they're still seeing another prepackaged meal. because So we needed to focus on, and that was what we were talking about yeah. as we talked to these ideas. We were talking through these, you know, we were having our meeting of the minds. We were talking to these ideas. Well, then what do we need to do? Because it's not just about changing the food or where it comes from or what it is, but it's also changing how it's being prepared. Yeah, because when I came in, I you know, it, it seemed to me that, you know, if, if we're going to run a foundation and help people then you know and I come from an entrepreneurial background right so in you know as an entrepreneur I'd go out and raise venture and then because I would sell people on this notion that you could there's a game-changing idea and they would fund it which you couldn't get the game-changing idea off the ground unless you had you know funding and so it was sort of the same approach not knowing any other approach to take to philanthropy I said the same thing to Laura and to our team I said if you had the funding to get you from where you are today to where you want to be while you're also still keeping the engine running, what does tomorrow look like, right? Because, you know, potentially we use philanthropic funding to get from here to there, right? And eventually there's a convergence where the budget that you're using today moves over to take over for what we plan for tomorrow. And so that began this whole planning process, you know, as as we built a relationship and you know, they became assured that we're not going anywhere um, and that that the support's not going to dry up and that, you know, we are we're all going to target an end game, right, where the city can run on its own again, but that we're, we're not going to leave until it's done. And so that that's I think has created this really great synergy between the work that the foundation's doing and the work that Lauren or team are doing. And so we're trying to help be the transformation agent for them. I think you're absolutely right. And I think also part of it is that as we were, it's also being introduced as being new to Boston is introduced to a lot of different people that are willing. I, I think when you present the opportunity of we're going to, we're, we're going to change, revolutionize how we feed, feed, feed kids. And so when we get introduced to people, I mean, we would say to talk to, you know, heads of ISD or, you know, people, city council members, it's everybody who's really wanting to, how they can help us pave the way to make changes in Boston. And what's ISD? Oh, I'm sorry. The instant inspectional services. Thank you. Inspectional okay. services department, which is, um, the oversees the health department. I see. I so, for it. reasons because of the way our structures were built, we always had to safety yep. first for all the meals that we prepare. We had to make sure within the because we don't have uh, locations have you know very limited facilities that we had to make sure all of our food is going to be served in a safe manner. So, if we're going to be uprooting how we're going to be pro- providing our meals to kids. We had to think about all of those aspects. Well, when you cook, think about it, when you cook locally, right? You're cooking in front of kids now, so kids can smell and kids can see, and kids are interactive with their food. It involves knives. <laughs> it involves product that's raw. I mean, it involves all these things that that were kind of stripped out of 75% of the schools years ago or maybe never existed in them. And so there's new there's new rules. So so you just talked mentioned, Jill, what tomorrow looks like. Let's think about what tomorrow looks like. So for today, there are, there, there are kids in Boston public schools whose food is still coming from New Jersey. I don't even want to ask how long ago you think it was actually prepared because it was probably prepared and frozen and it's, it's being thawed or something like that. But in terms of what tomorrow looks like, um, I had the opportunity with my wife, Rosemary, to go visit uh, the P.J. Kennedy okay. uh, Elementary School, which is in East Boston. Jill met us there and showed us around. And it was quite amazing because uh, some chefs here in Boston, both of whom have been on this podcast, Andy Husbands and Ken Oranger, worked with the schools and with the Shaw Foundation to actually build a kitchen. And there was something I think called a combi oven, but I don't really know what a combi oven is. It's magical. So we didn't know either. I think Andy Husbands might have been the first one to point us towards combi ovens. I'm pretty sure he uses them. Um, So it's a combination, steam and heat oven, which then, so you manipulate the steam and the heat, and it can do everything from broil and bake to effectively make something feel fried. 
without ever using oil. And so it's it's this magical thing that's evolved over time that wasn't great 10 years ago and is really wonderful now. It's much more often used in Europe. It's more it's becoming more adopted in the US now. But functionally, it's not very big. Um, it, 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 it functions, you know, very effectively in a small space and, um, it lets us be very diverse with the proteins and the produce in ways that you couldn't, you'd have to have multiple different functioning, um, devices, which we could never fit into a kitchen. Santiago Santi was very excited. Oh, you uh, remember Santi, yeah. I remember yeah. Santi, who uh, looked to me like the chef or at least the person in charge of the kitchen at PJ Kennedy. Uh, what's his job there? So Santiago Marin is one of our fabulous employees, one of our strong but mighty out of the 503 employees we have in Boston. And he is actually, his position is involved. He started out as the cook position at the PJK, now he's evolved into the manager position. The manager of right. the of the of the whole facility, the, the whole pro- the whole program there. We stood in line in, in in the kitchen in the back, and we watched as kids came in at lunch to get their food, and it was really quite amazing because it was everything that Jill just described in terms of smelling good and getting to watch people prepare the food. How did that come about? I think it's one of three schools that are a pilot for the Shaw Foundation, and working with Boston Public Schools to see can we start to be cooking fresh food here. Yeah, it was um that that was fun. That was, so that was last year about this time right. where we kind of we'd gone through a whole process with Laura and her team and we'd landed on yes, if we can cook in the schools, we want to cook in the schools and so we kind of ran around to and asked everyone we could possibly um you know, meet what is this kitchen supposed to look like? Um, and so Ken was involved in that. Andy was involved in that. Um, John Olinto from Be Good was involved in that. Uh, all kinds of folks who John run Olinto different. John Olinto is a chef? He, or, well, uh, one of the two founders of Be Good. Oh, Be Good, okay. And so in where we land, as we started poking around kitchens, we went over Sweet Green and looked at their kitchen um, for their store locally in the Back Bay. I mean, so from a fast, casual perspective, it was kind of where we needed to go because they're cooking for so many people out of such a small space. Like I think the one in Back Bay here is... 250. The sweet green kitchen. Yeah. Really? I mean, oh. it's, it's unbelievable. And I think yeah. they serve something like 50,000 people a week or maybe more. I'm, pr- I'm probably misquoting the um, number of servings, but it's it's at least that many and uh, for lunch. And so we con- this combi oven became, even though the combi oven in itself is expensive, it, like, it became the end-all be-all in terms of how do you cook things so that they're amazing and delicious. And the Be Good guys came over and had lunch with Santi and they said, his cauliflower is maybe better. <laughs> I'm going to tell you you said that. Santi's cauliflower is better than sweet Yeah, it was like so perfectly roasted and amazing. And I mean, kids, like that's one of the number one selling vegetables at the school. Not that we sell anything, but, you know, that's one most taken vegetables is roasted cauliflower. So Laura and Joe, give us a little sense of before and after for kids who have had their meals prepared one way when the food was being um, you know, uh, heated up and taken out of a plastic tray and kids were having their food cooked. What's How, how has it impacted them? What's it looked like? So a couple of things. Um, beforehand, it, because of again, the way our layouts were built in the kitchens and the cafeteria, it was literally an oven, a freezer, a refrigerator, and a steam and a, and, a, and a table. So they would prepare the meals, take them out and put them on the, uh, a stainless steel table and then the kids would come in. There's no marketing. There's no signage. You can't really see. The label was actually on the bottom of the tray so you can see what it what it said and you had to lift it up to see if you picked it up over your head what it was because again because when it's heated up and it's covered in plastic the condensation you you just see like this little white film now (laughs) i know i know i I, I know but it's uh, it's again aesthetics and presentation are everything it could taste good and it's it smells good it's it smells good but if it's involved in a little piece of plastic you can't really get that Mm. now you walk into, and I'm sure maybe you saw, you felt that the PJK, PJK is a three-story building. The kitchen's in the basement. You walk in, the entire building smells of whatever they're cooking. You walk into the into the school, it's exactly what you, you're, it just hits you. And then you're going into, then you go down to the cafeteria. Now there is, there is no steel, uh, st- uh, stainless steel table. It is um, um, presentation of the meals in um, steam tables. Mm-hmm. So then now they're able to see it. There is a big sign that says what's today's menu and what you can choose from. And then it's just, oh, they walk through and then they'll say, I can, I, I, they can pick. 
Exactly. It looks like a little bit like a little bit fast casual location where they can be able to say, I see pasta, I want pasta. I see sauce, I want this sauce. I want, and then I see the salad bar and then I get to pick and then they make the salad for them. You know, you know, the um, chart at the doctor's office that measures pain and it tells kids to point and there's like a sad face on one side and a happy yeah. face on the other. And then there's like a there's like a straight line kind of somewhere at the beginning. I think most kids would have paint, pointed to like the straight line or to the unhappy face. And today, most kids are pointing towards the happy face. Talk to us about what kids are eating, in, in, at least in these schools. Kids where are food eating is being things that now. people say kids don't eat. Right. And I think part for, of it. Like, like what, for example? Um, roasted cauliflower, okay. broccoli. Yep. They'll open up in a, a salad bar where they have the option between a salad bar and a main entree, and they usually they do take a lot of the Red salad. peppers. Right. Chickpeas. Yep. I mean, like, really, the whole people kind of poo pooed the idea of salad bars saying kids don't eat salad. And, you know, part of this modeling after fast casual is that we broke the entire menu apart. And so when you deconstruct, we found I just thought about the way my own kids eat, the way my ki- my friends' kids eat. They like pieces of meals. They don't necessarily like everything compiled. And you put something green on top of something, and all of a sudden the whole thing can fall apart, right? You sprinkle right, a little parsley, right. and it's like, uh, there's no way I'm touching it. And so our, our thinking was if we just let the kids walk down a line and pick protein and pick carbs and pick through all kinds of veggies that are colorful and beautiful and fruits, what are they going to do? And so what happens is every kid picks what they want to eat. And so they end up eating it. I think you saw that when you went to PJK. And and they don't take what they don't want, and so there is much less waste. And, and Well, at, at PJK, I, as you know, I went around and yeah, looked in all the trash cans because yeah, I, I always like to check the trash cans, the barrels, <laughs> and see what kids are throwing setting, away yeah. because you hear a lot about food waste in right. school meals. And, and they were, except for the cardboard trays, they were empty. There was yeah. there was really no food in them. So I yeah. was shocked. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. A, it was just a sample of one day, but I was really surprised. Yeah, I'm glad to hear. Well, I think part of it is, you know, Jill touched on a lot of great things. The aesthetics behind eating is what was missing in a lot of these locations. The, yeah. the smell, the, the feel. The aesthetics the aesthetic, behind right. eating. That's very interesting, the Be- way it smelled and looked. And- right, exactly, because people take for granted, it was just, oh, it's just lunch, they got to eat. No, for some of these children, in Boston in particular, seven out of every 10 are living at or below the poverty level. So for some of our children, this may be the only meal that they've eaten since lunch the day before. Right. And I think at PJ Kennedy in particular, they right. told us that about 67% of the kids were below the poverty line. It's right. equivalent to what you just said. Absolutely, yeah. and then... And then for even some other locations, it might even be higher. Mm. Um, but I think part of it is as we, you know, we look through the whole process and thinking about, you know, how we're going to provide meals for kids and how we're going to be, you know, how we say de- deconstructing the menus and providing. It's I think this this whole project really speaks to what I feel is meant for the school meal and nutrition program to be, which is engaging to the student because our, our staff is engaging with the student, talking to them about what what about this and what about that? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? But then also kids are choosing what they eat and they're going to eat what they choose versus now the way the regulations have been u- utilized and how some how some how districts across the country are, 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 are implementing them is that they've put all the meals together to meet the five components so that children take three out of the five. And then that if you only want that one thing or you won't eat that particular thing because it has sauce or whatever it is, we've just created these meals that meet requirements but kids aren't going to eat or they'll take it. And then the worst thing for me to see to see is that they'll go through the line, they've you know, technically participated, then they throw everything in the trash for just the one thing that they want. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, the other component that I think is missing in the prepackaged meals is, and I, and I, I say this with all seriousness, it, it's love. You know, so if you go to the full service kitchens, you see the staff at at least Boston Public Schools, a lot of them grew up in the city. They went to the schools. Sometimes they went to the schools that they're now providing services to. And so there's a real connection between the staff and the students as they're served. At the satellite kitchens, there are a bunch of boxes that were kind of put on a table and the kids would walk by and take a a box. And there's no no human interaction. And so not only, I think... You can see love being infused in the food as the chefs are cooking it at the schools, but you you also see this like beautiful interaction between kids in the line and between the staff members and the kids as they walk through the line, and they're asked questions and they get to make decisions and and so I think it's there's a lot happening 
that we didn't even expect well, and, to happen. And when somebody cooks something, they really want people to enjoy it. Right. Whether it's your grandmother or, right. or your school chef, right? They, they they cooked it. They want you to enjoy it. I remember when we visited, Santi, I'm the pickiest eater in the world. Santi was begging me to <laughs> try the mac and cheese that day. There was chicken. There was mac and cheese. There were the vegetables. Did you try and it? I, I've, I've literally never had mac and cheese once in my life, and I wasn't about to start there because I think I would have created a scene. Oh I'm just the pickiest guy in the world. I can't <laughs> eat a noodle. But he was. But, but what you're what you're talking about, Joe, was so true. He yeah. was so enthused about it yeah. that you could see that you know translating to the right. kids. It takes yeah. pride in what he does, yeah. and I think that's wonderful because and the kids feel that that yeah. somebody is caring about what yeah. I'm eating. Well, and he knows how to do it. You know, like right. he's got that's sweet different. potato wedges on the line. He you know he gets one kid to do it, and he, he then refers to that child until he's left <laughs> the line so that every other you know because the kids are followers right they so, like to do the thing, did you know but... so and so from that class yeah. you know he tried it why don't you try yeah, it yeah, yeah. it's really right. good it's something new something new so i i think that that's part of what the program is meant to be because you know we, we do talk about is that you know studies show that kids need to have see something or try in front of them from seven to eight times before they'll you know really like it or they'll you know they'll, they'll be they'll begin to eat it so part of that is and we take all of that information is how we we do the, the school meal program but this really just pushes it into yeah. the next level yeah. well let's talk about where this goes from here in terms of how it scales because you told me something that day jill that i've been thinking about and not completely understanding which was when you first went into the school and the, the estimates of what it would take to renovate, build the kitchen, and so forth, right. were very high. I think you said they were a million dollars. It was a million dollars. And you ended, yeah, up, you ended yep. up doing the whole thing for... Between sixty-five and $75,000. So that sounds too. like... Right. Like, Crazy. how could that be? How could there be such a, a, yeah. a discrepancy? Difference? Well, they, they were definitely working. So, so one, there's an old model of kitchen. So there was a there was a grounded belief that you cannot put kitchens in certain schools, and and I think partially because that when folks conceived of kitchens, they thought about, you know, full service kitchens, like the kind of kitchen that you would see in the back of a hotel or in the back of like a significant rest restaurant, and so they they hadn't downsized in their mind. Um, to core components and they hadn't thought about, okay, menu drives everything. Right. And so I've learned. And so as you really think through menu and really think about optimization, then you can start to shrink everything. And so I think, I don't know that it had ever been that important. And so there wasn't that much brain power and I focused think, on it. Right, because our schools, the majority of them were built before World War II. The school nutrition program didn't come in an act until like 1946, yeah. 45, think, 46. Again, P.J. Kennedy, I think, was built in 33. Correct. Right? So, and only renovated oh, yeah. once in the oh, last 50 Lord. years. So, yeah. And when those programs, right. when we had it, is children generally, they were neighborhood schools, so they would walk home and then come back, go, go home, eat lunch, and then come back. When the program was enacted and requiring schools to have a, a, a lunch program, it was like almost like a scramble. It's like, oh, what do we got to do? We got we got to put a look a facility somewhere. So you'll see in a lot of these older schools, just like the PJK, it's generally in the basement yeah. where all the water pipes are, and then also. Um, and the kids may not all live close to the school now. You're that's saying, right. right. They're coming from. Yeah, they're coming from everywhere. Right. And, but then also, they're so they're close to the the wider pipes where also the bathrooms are. So sometimes some of these kitchens are right next. They're close to that. So it's working through that, and then so the belief was, this is the way they were built. We can't really uh, do anything about it. You can't build go down because of the uh, because of the structure. You can't go up because then you'll hit classrooms. So it's thinking, and then Jill and her team, because she's. We've been thinking a lot about this. That they brought in uh, restaurateurs that focus on and teaching other people who want to open restaurants in 250 square feet and say, "Hey, what can we do to meet, all, right? to meet regulations that's going to help us prepare meals? What can we do in these kinds of spaces?" And then they came in and they were showing us all kinds of things. So they helped problem solve it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we had some really great facility teams in Boston that said, "Hey, uh, okay, let's amazing. see." Let's see. Okay, I know this, and I know the structure. Let, let's see how we can play around with it. And so then we it went from it's giving people permission. As soon as people had permission to not think that a kitchen was going to cost a million dollars, I mean the facility guys are unbelievable problem solvers, right? Like you give good space designers a problem that they is find realistic. pipes and all kinds of stuff out of nowhere. It's, it's great. It's unbelievable, right? And so, then plus also we were looking at the facility. I'm sorry. Um, the facility from a different standpoint of having different types of equipment in there. So we, and we talked about the combi oven just a little bit. That's just a completely different process, uh, piece of equipment that we've never really utilized, nor that we could think that we could afford it either. And so having that introduced space saver, it does multiple things. It's part of that training. So that really just, again, 
ripped open the opportunity. So is the takeaway that this could actually be done in every school uh, over time, not just in Boston, but oh, yeah. almost anywhere, Everywhere. right? I mean, this I is, mean there's, there's nothing inherently impossible about cooking good food for kids at school. Yeah. And that's, I mean, so that's, so we're going to, so play this out. And the mayor is very supportive of this. And he mentioned it in his address on January 1st. Um, you know, this will get played out in Boston, right? So we'll have some extraordinary proof points for how you do it. And, you know, there's a bit of a private-public partnership that's happening, and, and it's a wonderful thing, and I think that probably can exist in a lot of cities too. Um, but we'll have a template. We'll have an absolute br- blueprint by the end of this, and I think we have components of it right now, which we are more than happy to share broadly across the country. I think share strength should be helping I think you do that you have it's share such a good idea. in your name. But, exactly. But are you yeah. saying that there will be 125 <laughs> schools in Boston that are cooking that's food for the, their kids eventually? That's, that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the goal. That's, that's, the, that's the shared goal right. between yeah. the two of you. 100%. Think, absolutely. I think right now, because our structure, our facilities are limited, we did move in our new RFP to provide get a provider that does fresher meals. They're not frozen. They're fresh and they're delivered to schools. And who's that? That's with Revolution, Revolution Foods. Foods. However, okay. we still note that there's still things that we want to do beyond that. And it's, it's an ask back from our communities and our parents that, you know, we want to make sure that we provide students the best opportunity for the meals that they're, they're, that they're being served and in reference to how, again, it's being prepared no. and to be much more local and much more sustainable and thinking through what we want to be by Boston for Boston. And Laura, not to get too much in the weeds, but you're also working within a federal reimbursement rate that you, I'm assuming, have to stay within correct, or find a way to supplement, correct. but probably stay within. Yes. And that is, like, give us an example. How much is that for school breakfast or school lunch? Uh, uh, it's probably like, probably like a dollar and a quarter and for breakfast. $3.31 for lunch. Thank $3. you. 31 for lunch. And then I, it's $2.19 for breakfast. I don't remember. If people, I'm sure they're going to be like, oh, no, that's not the right one. Yeah. I just know that it's, it's, it's small. Yeah. And I will, I think in Jill is absolutely right. That is, if we were continuing to work on our daily day, day-to-day operations, continuing to provide meals to, to kids at the other 121 locations, having this process and this opportunity with the foundation to be able to say, okay, what do you need? We can do that. Okay, we'll get, we'll, we'll help manage the project. Okay, we'll, we'll do the analysis. We'll help with this. We'll do that. We'll do this. It helped to. Again, it's like changing the oil of a car that's going 60 miles per hour. So it was an opportunity that we were constantly having that support to continue to change where we're going in reference to how we're providing meals to kids. But knowing that there wasn't some uh, a roadblock regarding funding because we had a support that's going to be able to say, okay, let's try this different model. Let's try to do this different. And even right now, as we are evolving, we're continuing to um to change the process of how, you know, from the the meals that we're serving to the type of training that we're getting to even the type of how we're, right, you know, um, filling out production records. It's all kinds of wonderful things that we're constantly, you know, changing and reviewing so that we can, when we're, when we are pushing it forward as district-wide, that it's just going to be as effective as possible. Yeah. And the big numbers might be more interesting. So like the $3.31 is like, oh, how do you do that for lunch every day for every kid? But then the big numbers are very interesting because it's it's revenue to the city that comes from the USDA. And, and we're a fully subsidized city because of the levels of poverty in the city. And so right now we get about $33 million um, as a budget that comes into for food. So it's for food, for people, for the facilities, for everything that has anything to do with food. And um, there's the potential, and this is probably on the low side, to, to drive that to $85 million. By increasing participation in the programs, which we've seen in almost every urban school district that we've worked in. So how are the kids reacting to this? Can you tell us uh, any stories about the way the kids are responding, any things that they've said or things that you've witnessed? Well, I, this is my favorite, is that when they're coming in through the door and they have their little lunchbox from home, that they look and they see and they smell, and they'll go to the ca- to the kitchen to the cafeteria uh, tables in the cafeteria, put their lunchbox down, and then come back in line and go get a meal. So that's my favorite thing to see. I love that they get 
there's positive reactions to the to the vegetables that we have. I think I always say this, I don't think anything screams success better than when the vegetable is the first dish to go that you've run out of. And it had to be new to some of these kids, right? Yes. Oh, 100%. Yes. I mean, they, they didn't know what cauliflower was. But they but they yeah. em, they embraced it? Yeah. They're embracing it. And I think that it's because also it's you know we're as we again part of the program is just to keeping some stability and having the we have a we change it to a 10-day menu cycle with all of these different combinations that students can make but it's also that the kids again having the opportunity to choose and then they say okay i'd rather have this one that vegetable versus that one or i'd rather have pasta versus rice so it's a wonderful thing well my other surprise when i was there at at pjk was uh sat for a minute with two young girls and said you know what's your favorite thing on the train it was the broccoli for both of them which is (laughs) really just didn't expect it yeah that's Um, good did not see that coming it's so cute no i have two favorite stories about the kids that i like to tell so one was you know getting from never having taken had choice in their lives to like moving through the line swiftly which is another part of the school day right you got to kind of get through that line quickly to get back to class and so um the kids once we got through kind of two weeks of training them that they had choice and how to pick through the line, we walked into the school and um, one of my colleagues had gone into the cafeteria and he said, you have to come in here. And I went in and I looked and it was, there was this quiet hum and every kid was leaned over a tray and just eating. And that that's not how a lunchroom in a public school like, usually, right. I almost cried. I was like, this chaotic. is unbelievable. And then, and then I think it may have been the same day or one, another day, but I was sitting with a couple of boys and I said, okay, what's next? What do we do next? What, 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 what do we need more of? What do we change? What? And they kind of looked at me like, this is really good. Like, I'm not Don't sure what anyway. he, I, they had no ideas. <laughs> it's terrific. Great. We will be right back with Laura Benvenides and Jill Shaw. So, so Jill, as, as you think, uh, as an investor and as somebody who's been involved in venture capital work about um, ROI, how do you think about it in terms of what you're doing with the schools? Right. So, so you know, I, I, my, I'm constantly evolving my thinking on what the ROI is for this program. Um, so originally, we thought about it just in terms of um, naturally, instinctively, as a parent, you feed your kids a certain way or you strive to feed your kids a certain way because um, you know that good nutritious food that you cook if at all possible is the best food that they can have right and so you know so from that perspective if we could get that happening in every school the, that would be the, the end game um that, that and if we could make sure that the city could continue to deliver it in that way within the constraints of the um subsidy that it was receiving that was the return. You know, as I as I watch the program start to take place and I learn more and I talk to more people who deeply are involved in food, I think it impacts way more than – I mean, I look at – you know, we put three kitchens into three schools and the principals changed schedules to accommodate for it. Teachers wanted to know what was on the menu so that they could talk to the kids about food that they didn't know, you know, like broccoli or, or uh, cauliflower. Um People get very engaged in ways that I think are very communal and wonderful. Parents are engaged. They want, you know, so so there's all of these other things and, and how you measure those things. I mean, some of it, some of it I think is important to to measure with studies. Some of it is, you know, just a vibe that you feel when you walk into a place. And it's so, so different. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. But um but you know, we are. It was like that hum that I described when you saw every kid leaning over the table, happily eating, and and you know, thriving with the person next to them. I mean, I, I think you've got to measure the hum. Yeah, you got to measure the hum. You got to measure the hum. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your backstories and how you came to food, because you, Laura, also have an expertise that comes from being at least ten years doing similar work in the L.A. Unified School District in Los Angeles, where Sheriff Strength worked very uh, closely with the school district to increase participation in breakfast in particular by moving breakfast from the cafeteria to uh, breakfast after the bell, first period, grab and go afterwards. But how did you originally become a food person? A food services director? Well, you know, um, I went to school in Texas. I graduated from Texas A&M. 
And I had graduated from uh, from college, and then 9-11 had happened. So I was in the middle of all these kinds of interviews, and then it just kind of stopped. It just Everything just got slow. And then I had an opportunity to interview with this um, company, um, a contract management company, and they said, well, we specialize in school school meals and school contract, you know, running school nutrition programs. So I was like, well, I can, let me just try that and see what happens because I'm business-minded, so I wanted to do business. And it's, you know, being around kids, it can't be that bad. So, you know, young. And so I went and I tried it, loved it. So I worked in really small districts and I was in, in Texas. And then the contract management company there said, hey, you know, we have this great opportunity in California. I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, California, L.A. I was thinking surf in the morning and ski in the evenings yeah. or whatever. I was thinking <laughs> that. And then they sent me to this small little town in central California that with the prison population was like 9,000. So I was like, okay. So this is in right. the central valley of Yes. Of Cal- so the town, wind would blow uh, Colinga, California. Okay. Right. So the wind blew one way, it smelled like garlic. It blew the other way, it smelled like manure. So I was like, alrighty. But I've always been a person that makes the best out of any situation. So... I learned everything that I could as being the person in charge of the program, you know, learning more about the budgets and how we can, you know, it's a small district, it was 12 schools, how we can increase participation, how can we get, you know, access to students and, you know, taste testings and all those wonderful things. And then plus you had a lot of the support, the marketing support from a a, a contract management company. And then um, a friend of mine who lived in L.A. said, hey, you know, L.A. Unified is looking for senior supervisors. I was thinking, well, let me see. Let me see. It might be an opportunity. So I went. I applied. I got the job. So I moved to L.A. And then within six weeks, the director in L.A. was retiring. And so was the deputy director was retiring. Within six weeks that I started the job, I was like, okay, well, then what's going to happen now? And then the business manager had asked if I would sit, step in as the deputy director based on my background. My business background to step in as a so deputy director. you jumped director. into a big job very quickly. Yeah, and I was like, I was thinking, I was like, I don't know. I mean, it's like a big responsibility going from twelve schools to like you know seven hundred and fifty, and thinking, oh my goodness. But I didn't want. I knew I was going to learn. I didn't think of how long it was going to last. I was like, I'm going to learn. I'm going to I'm going to learn as much as I can, and then be able to support the person who's going to come in for the position. And then uh, they asked, and then so I was in the position for almost about a year. And then one of the great people I ever met in, in, that's worked in school meals all his life was Dennis Barrett, who's the director who became the d- new director of, of of food services for for Los Angeles Unified. Learned so much from him, and um, he asked if I would you know apply for the job and if, say as a deputy director. I was like, okay, that was it. Yeah, wow. that was it. And wow. then, but within that. L.A. is much like Boston, is a high poverty rate, lots of pockets of poverty, lots of pockets of wealth. But it was still a very high-need district. And in that, it was an opportunity to make an impact. Any policy that we could possibly do to make changes, it would be a great second-largest school district in the country, largest school breakfast program alone by itself. And then um, and then, so we were just kind of talking, and there was an opportunity to say, well, because in my la- when I was in my small school district, I rolled out breakfast in the classroom. I'm thinking... What would that be an opportunity? This was the 12th school mm-hmm. district. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah. And then um, it was an opportunity to look at, from my perspective, of how we could we further impact kids. It, the, our statistics were showing that eight, as 80, eight, out of, eight out of every 10 of our kids were living out of below the poverty level. My breakfast participation was barely over 25%. So we're thinking, well, what's what's going on? Is it you know time? Is it the location? Is it the menu? Is it what is it that kids aren't participating? So it was an opportunity to how we could close that gap, and then presenting that to the new superintendent and to presenting that to our local superintendents and all these wonderful people, and saying how can we impact kids? And then we started out a pilot program of about twenty schools, and then it just kind of snowballed into rolling it out over 630 schools in L.A., going from about 100,000 meals a day to about 360,000 breakfast meals. Amazing, amazing. Um, Now, Jill, health and wellness issues as they relate to kids or families or anybody are not particularly new to you because you were also the founder of something called Jill's List, right, which had a health and wellness kind of connection. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, so well, so Jill's List. We um, we founded Jill's List um, because it, so it was it was at this time, Billy. I just had I think my first child, and it was a tough uh, delivery. I lost about a third of my blood in the delivery, and so I'd never been sick in my life. I was college athlete, I, you know. So so after that happened, 
the recovery was really hard. And a friend of mine who's Chinese said, you should just go see this herbalist acupuncturist. And so this is the first time I think I maybe had heard of an acupuncturist. And so I went to see him. And um, I was I was, a, I was gray. I couldn't move around very much. I just, it was awful. And he gave me some herbs. And I felt better in two weeks. Like, 100% back to myself. And I remember saying to my OB at the time, how about this stuff? He's like, yeah, I have no idea what that is. I was like, how can you not know what it is? Like, it totally just brought me back. And um, so anyway, that turned me on to acupuncture. I had I started having that conversation with lots of other people, especially women. And I realized we were all kind of like breaching. I was about to be 30s. And um, I was like, everybody's talking about this, right? Because like these women were becoming the chief medical officers of their homes. And right, right? And so they're right. looking at how, what are better solutions for our kids? How do I help my parents? What do I do as I age? And so Jill's List was built to connect people to alternative medicine providers. And so at the time, and maybe still now, although I feel like it's trending in the right direction, food was considered alternative. Yes. <laughs> and so, right, because like doctors aren't trained on nutrition and it's not part of your intake. Generally, when you go to see your doctor, no one asks you what you're eating every day. And so, um, but in that world, everyone spends a lot of time talking about how important food is. And so that was definitely, it struck me when I saw the oven and the frozen food that that probably wasn't the best medicine for kids in the city of Boston. And after Jill's List, uh, which you sold, I believe, yeah, came uh, body. the Shaw family foundation. Yeah. So right. So I right. So so Neerj, um, my yes, husband, husband. Right. So so he is one of the founders of Wayfair, which is um, the largest online supplier of um, home furnishings, Wayfair.com. And we had been thinking about creating a foundation. And um, so we decided to do that about a year or so ago. And in thinking about how we wanted to try to impact things, um, we thought, okay, well, let's try to continue to take an entrepreneurial approach. We're very interested in public education and in healthcare and and where they intersect with community. you know, we're really interested in the patient being involved in their health and really understanding what's happening and understanding what the options are for taking care of themselves, especially from a chronic care perspective. And so, and we thought, well, Boston's, you know, big enough to be this giant Petri dish to work and collaborate and really try to figure out, you know, what can work. And then small, but mighty. mighty. Yeah. And so, and, and so then, so that's kind of what we're doing with food nutrition services, right? We hope to help people replicate that across the country by sharing everything we know. And, you know, if other things come along too, some things are starting to brew that, you know, we would be able to help affect change here a hundred percent and then share with the world. I think, you know, as in the business of education, we want to make sure that we are providing as much information to our students about not in giving them that choice, that it's not saying that, you know, forcing them, you got to have this and this and this, but it's saying that these are some options and, you know, this is how they impact you in a positive or even possibly negative way. Yeah. Now, speaking of these impacts, is there a point at which we'll be able to know more about um, some of the other consequences of kids eating healthy, nutritious, cooked food? Will we see any correlations between their educational outcomes, their attendance, tardiness, test scores. Uh, That's hard to gather and it's hard to correlate in any cause and effect way. But is that something that could be on the horizon? So we're working, so we're funding an initial study um, that'll start to happen this spring. And then I think we're going to, they're going to do some data gathering to do a larger study in the fall because there'll be many, many more schools equipped by the fall to, um, to study. And so, so they'll use these, I think, as benchmark um, statistics. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're, we'll, we'll look at all of those things. And we're working with um, David Ludwig, who uh, helps run the OWL Clinic, which is funded by New Balance Foundation. Um, and so he's, it's interesting to look at it from all these perspectives, right? Because kids are getting calories in school, Kids are getting calories out of school. Their choices are often very bad in terms of the calories that they get outside of school. There's so many bags of Doritos, you know, being passed around. Their status, you know, attached to to junk food and sharing junk food. So this is really interesting, the dynamics. So, but I do think, like, I think, I think making school food better, making it great, filling it with love, making it interactive I think that that actually probably impacts kids pretty broadly. 
I think based off of even just the small anecdotal of talking to kids and they're like, broccoli was my favorite. It's, it's, it's one subset. We, I think we definitely, it's an opportunity that, you know, we've got what, 300, 300 plus universities around us that we could possibly get more people interested in trying to study the impacts of the way, just the, the, the way we've made changes. We are still following the regulations. And Jill did bring in uh, Dr. Ludwig, who's done a lot of research about not only just what students, what actually his patients are eating. He does focus a lot on, on children, but what they're eating, but how it impacts them. So whatever you're eating in the morning, how is how long will it carry you before it either you crash or you're hungry again? And then having utilizing that research to help us build our menus, it's just it's just amazing opportunity. Yeah. So that we're just constantly just getting smarter about you know again how we want our program to evolve. And I think I'd read in your bio, Laura, that you were actually were a child involved in Head Start when you were very young, and so personally knew what food you know those types of food programs were all about. So I'm sure that's something that's been formative for you as well. It is. My mom was uh, actually, she was a, 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 I was considered a migrant uh, student, uh, child because my, my parents went up to, up north to work and then they would come back. But my mom said after I was from born. Where? From, from where? From South Texas. Okay. All the way up to Michigan. Because mm-hmm. I was born in Michigan. You were born don't, in Michigan. Yeah, don't tell okay. anybody though. Everybody thinks I'm from born from Texas. <laughs> but, but I was, uh, it grew up, and so my mom said after I was born, she said that she wanted a better life. So they stopped. But she, she was a, um, 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 from a migrant family. She was one of sixteen students, uh, stu- a family. Uh, she's, and from where originally? Um, all, they're all from South Texas. Okay. And so, and then my my grandparents were from Mexico, and so, but in that it was the, at that time it was the more hands you had, the more money, you know, the more children you had, the more hands you had to work. But learning in that, she, for her, she felt they they didn't have any kind of that support like they have migrant. Uh, programs now and you know funding and things like that and because what they would do is they'd pull you out in um, April you'd go work and then come back in November so you miss all of that school out of all of those 16 kids from my mom's family four of them graduated from high school and my mom went on to college but then after I was born she said I wanted a better life for for you so for me and and then so I was going into all of these programs and I know how impactful and helpful they can be I do remember somebody making me eat oatmeal before I could leave the table, and I'll never eat oatmeal again. I remember that I was four, and I'll never eat oatmeal again. So I know how it, it's impactful, how you can influence children right. as so, well. So, I mean, you, you, you have yeah. that personal sense of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I think also when, with kids, and you're just making me think, I was thinking about impact on kids. We were over at um, one of the boys and girls clubs uh, last night watching them serve dinner. And there they have a program so the kids are learning how to cook, so their kids back there chopping and their kids are serving. And watching the interaction between the kids serving their peers and their peers was the most lovely thing, right? It's just, you know, there's a little bit of chiding if someone didn't want to take the orange, and there was this, like, wonderful repartee, and, thank, like, lots of thank yous and wonderful, you know, love being passed around. And I, so I feel like, and that's kind of a part of um, the program that the mayor is really excited about, the mayor of Boston, is the student pathway programs that, you know, because they're, for sure, you know, the more time I spend in these public schools, absolutely college you know, should be an option for everyone, and we should be coaxing kids to to go to college. But there are lots of kids who, if we could prepare them for a job, I mean, working. And, and that's what student pathways. And means. so, students pathways would be getting the kids to work in culinary environments within, you know, in high school, so that they could graduate. I mean, jobs at Boston Public Schools in the Food and Nutrition Services Department. You know, you're making twenty dollars an hour, and you have full benefits. It's a fantastic That's a good job. job. That's yeah. a good job. So, like, so I mean, for certain people, that's a great pathway, right? And so, and I, and, and I think he's very cognizant of that. He being the mayor, that there's a lot. We have to create as many options as we can to give kids great choices for you know outcomes that are going to help them really survive and thrive as they as they graduate from high school. So, as as you think about where this goes next, and you think about growing and expanding it. One of the things you said to me at PJ Kennedy, Jill, was uh, we look for people who don't say no. They, the right, they just don't say no. You know, whatever it is. Like, that is gonna, our catchphrase. That, That's right? why you say That's that. Gonna... We are, when you deal with us, you know, we find another way around the no. So, yeah. so has there been resistance? How do you get around it? What will you do going forward to make sure that this reaches all 57,000 kids? Okay, well, so so someone said to me who, who worked um, in state government that bureaucracy exists for a reason. Right. There are cases one could think of times now where you would want to slow things down. And so so bad decisions aren't made. And so I understand 
bureaucracy from that perspective. But there are definitely times when we hear no, when it really just means not that way. And we, you need to be savvy enough to, to hear it that way so that you understand, okay, well, why does that rule in place? And how do we do what we think is the right thing, but also make sure that there's no harm, right? And so, so we, I don't think we've ever gotten – there's never been a roadblock where we've been stopped. It's just more that, you know, people, you know, ask us to take a deep breath and consider why – something, you know, why there's a rule in place or why. And so and so I think that's a really healthy sort of, you right. know, give and take as, as we go through the process. And I appreciate that better than I would. Uh, well, that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. So that part is just, okay, well, then we how, how can you help help me? Because if you're, if we're speaking to whoever it is, if you're the expert of, you know, this part of the facility or this regulation of the health department, how, tell me what is exactly does it say? And if, would, if we said to do it this way, we said to try A, does it work? Or if it doesn't, how about we try B? So it's really, she's right, be savvy. We want to make sure that we're exploring all kinds of options to be able to say, okay, now it's officially, you can't. The exploration usually leads to really good solutions too. I mean, so like just to give the one example of, you know, we were, Ken Oranger was in East Boston High School showing folks how to make salsa and he asked for salt. And they said, oh, we don't allow salt in the kitchens. And you got to have Ken's salt, chef right? At, you got to uh, have salt. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And so, like, unbelievable, brilliant chef. And so he said, What do you mean there's no salt in the kitchen? So then he promptly walked us around, the woman who's in charge of the kitchen, and myself, and said, Look at, you see that, you know, roast beef that we're using? That, that it's preserved with salt. You see these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that are prepackaged, 60% salt. He's like, There's salt in your kitchen. You're just not using it the right way, which led to this great conversation about what happens if we cook our own meat. Well, what happens if we cook our own meat is we save half a million dollars a year. So that was like a tangent that, so, you know, I, there's a, there's just so much nuance in all of this stuff, but at being willing to ask every question, be willing to just right. look at everything and not be afraid of it has led to this unbelievable result. I think part of it also is that we've just been, as a school nutrition program, we institutionalized. You have a whole lot of processes, how you know we've been doing this. And it's and it's changed. It's first it was a lot of home a lot of home cooked and then there was a whole lot of issues and they've made uh, made changes to do more grab and go. The 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 program has been, has evolved again to meet a lot of the trends. And now we're seeing it to go back to um, more, you know, scratch cooked. And then also to be, but then if your facilities aren't built that way, how do we do it? Or if you only have $3.31 to make a host, you know, from scratch meal for all of these students, how do we, how do we do that as well? So it's going through and evolving and then figuring out, these are my restrictions. This is what I have to offer. This is what we need to do. Then coming up with these, uh, strategies. Okay, if this doesn't work, then let's try this. If this doesn't work, well, then let's try this. So uh, last question for both of you. Someone's listening to this podcast, and they're obviously going to be inspired by what the two of you are doing, both individually and together. How can, um, how can somebody get involved? How can they make a difference? How can they join you? Uh, is there a website to go to? Can they contribute financially? Can they volunteer? Particularly parents yes. of, of students at Boston Public Schools who want to be part of what you're doing to improve the schools for their kids. What can what can the average person do? No, that'd be great. I'd have them. I know it's a hard email question. Ross. No, <laughs> um, no. So so we will have a website up imminently. I'm just for laughing the, for because the it was Foundation. supposed to be up before before break and and it didn't get up. Um, but there should be one up. I think in the next two weeks. Um, I mean, quite honestly, I would just have folks email me. I don't know if you want to give your email, probably not. But they can email Jill at ShawFoundation.org. Um, I can tell you a couple of things that we're recruiting people for right now. Um, we will create a, an organized um, group of parents and other advocates who want to be involved to effectively adopt and be a buddy to a school mm, as that. we roll out programmatically next year. Um, we had women volunteer this year, and it can be women or men, it just happened to be women, who literally went to the school each day for a couple of hours as we had liftoff around lunchtime when, you know, things are going to fall apart and break down until kids get used to the new process of, of going down a line making choices. And they're just there to help and provide, you know, love and attention to this to the um, folks behind the line and to hear, th you know, give us feedback, what's working, what's not working. So we, we need lots of those individuals um, to help with that sort of thing. And then we're also going to be holding with Laura Community um, 
uh, focus groups. Um, so in the in the areas where we're building new kitchens, and so as parents, we we want to get the word out and have as many people at those meetings as possible. Um, so we would love th- there'll be more about that, and we'll be very vocal about that. So we'd love people to show so up. So the those. email is Jill at Shaw, which is S H A H S H A H. Yeah, foundation dot org. So Jill at Shaw Foundation dot org. Uh, anything to add to that, Laura? Sure. Well, you can always email me. I'm a, a member of the of the community, and I represent BPS, and so I'm happy to be part of the the public to help. So it's L B is in boy, E N A V is in Victor, I D is in David, E Z at bostonpublicschools.org. I'm asked to do it all the time. <laughs> you do it very well. Oh, thank very- <laughs> you, thank you. And I think for for us, it's just. I'm always, we will, as we're evaluating and changing, we're always going to be looking, re, she'll be recruiting for volunteers, I'll be re, uh, recruiting for yeah. employees, because yeah, it's a great point. opportunity to get into the schools and go back to uh, what we want to be able to do, which is, you know, cooking from, from scratch. And you get to be around kids. Absolutely. Gosh, that is such a good point. So let's kids. reiterate that. Like, if you want to work in a kitchen, there is a, if you can serve, or if you can if you have some level of cooking skills, and it is not even like deep cooking skills, I mean, starting salary. And we can is even what? Uh, well, the starting salary for four hours is fourteen dollars, but it's a is plus benefits, right? Plus benefits, and then it increases from there. Right. These are great jobs, and these are jobs during the daytime in kitchens. Right. No weekends. With, this is right. what I, I mean, tell good work, man, work family it balance. Is great. I it's like a it. Great job. Yes. Okay. All right, you've heard it here on Add Passion and Stir. <laughs> We're with Laura Benavides, the uh, Executive Director of Food Service for the Boston Public Schools. Uh, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, and Jill Shaw, S-H-A-H, not go. S-H-A-W. Jill Shaw from the Shaw <laughs> Family Foundation, uh, good friend and an inspirational leader here in Boston. Thanks for being with us, Jill. Thank you, Billy. This is really fun. It yeah. was. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir.